Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network. Featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show... 303, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show we have lined up today. Couple of little bits of news we've got there for you this time. The Hugo's out and gone. Everything's all wrapped up and packed up. And alas, we didn't win a Hugo. You know, what can I say? I can say a big congratulations. In our category, it was Squeakast, who again won Best Award for Best Fan fan Cast. So a big, big congratulations to them. I'll give you a little run through who won what. Best novel was John Scalzi with his red shirts. Best novella, The Emperor's Soul by Brandon Sanderson. Best novelette was The Girl Thing Who Went Out on for Sushi by Pat Cadigan. Best short story was Mono Nowhere by Ken Liu. Best related work was Writing Excuses Season 7 by Brandon Sanderson. Best graphic story, Saga Volume 1, written by Brian V. Vaughan. We have the best... Dramatic Presentation Long Form, which was The Avengers. Best Dramatic Presentation Short Form was Game of Thrones Blackwater, written by George R. R. Martin. Best Editor Short Form, Stanley Schmidt. Now, that was actually really nice. Do you mean I kind of got a little kind of... Yes, about time, because I think he's been nominated about 30-odd times. Do you know what I mean? And he's retired there now. He's packed them in. So it was a nice kind of little round-off for everything there. Best Editor. Short form, Stanley Smith. Best editor, long form was Patrick Nielsen Hayden. Best professional artist, John Picacore. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Best semi-prosine is Clark's World. 
Best fanzine, which is fantastic. SF Signal, so pleased for them guys over there. And actually, they've pulled out from from that fanzine cast as well. They said they're not going to do no more Hugos for that as well. Like you say, best fan cast was SF Squeecast. Best fan writer was Tansia Reina Roberts. Best fan artist was Gala Dara. Garland Dara. <laughs> and the John W. Camel Award for Best New Writer. Mer Lafferty, which again is fantastic news. So a big thank you for everyone that kind of put in Starship Sova's little vote there. You know what I mean? It means a lot to us. You know, it's lovely to get nominated. Do you know what I mean? Fantastic. And some other news, really actually sad news as well. Frederick Paul passed away the other day. He was 93 year old and, you know, just again, I'm sure all of us who listen to this kind of shows, you know, thoughts go out there. Fred's family and friends, you know what I mean? Passing of a giant there, especially, you know, I re- did an interview, I think it might have been 2010, when I spoke, you know, Jack Vance is now gone as well, so I interviewed them two guys together. And, you know, they've both disappeared there, hopefully the better claims, you know, they're all there. And actually I've seen, there were some lovely comments on, you know, in Facebook, I can't remember them now, but, you know, it was some lovely sayings about, you know, Fred Paul going, you know, now to see all these kind of friends. Because, like you see, 93, there's not many of them. That kind of year I left, I don't think there's probably any. So, we still keep going on, though. Yes, we do. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. Now, we have a fact article, Cheap Skates, by Adam, who is, you know, as you know, our assistant editor there. And, yes, all right, I dropped a little bit of a kind of Charlie Hollick bollock a couple of weeks ago and I played Adam's old one. So this is the one Adam actually wanted played. Then we have part two of Adrift on the Sea of Rains by Ian Sales. Then we have Diane Severson. It's coming in with Porty Poetry Planet, number 10, Englin and the Dwarf Star Awards. Is that how showcase? Is that how you pronounce it, Diane? Elgin and the Dwarf Star Awards, showcase. That's on Poetry Planet, number 10. The narrator for Drifted and Syrians, again, is Logan Warman. We'll get to that as well. So, what can I say? Adam, you have my apologies. Let's play this correct show. Greetings to my fellow Coach Class passengers aboard the Starship Sofa. My name is Adam, welcoming you to Cheapskates and bringing you reviews of free science fiction ebooks and audiobooks. At the start of the show today, I'd like to share a few free online services that Cheapskates may find helpful. As you may have noticed, Cheapskates is coming out about half as often as it used to, about every other month rather than every month. Largely, this is because of my assistant editor role here taking up much more of my free time and my persistent and baffling failure to create a line of convincing and subservient clones of myself. It's startlingly difficult to get both. Alas, I remain but one man. Because six episodes per year is what I initially proposed to Tony at the start of Cheapskates, I don't feel too bad. But I can't help but have the sense I'm letting all of you cheapskates down. After all, six books is not all that many, especially if I'm giving a negative review rather than a recommendation. So here, I'd like to tell you about a few sites that might fill in the gaps where I am lacking. These are bookgorilla.com, bookbub.com, and freebooksy.com like footsie, 
only apparently with free books. Each of these sites has their own little quirks, but in principle and execution, they're all basically the same. You tell the service what genres you like, they'll keep tabs on free and discounted ebook specials and drop a daily email in your inbox with ones in your preferred genres. They can all be useful free services to help with discovery of free content. Now, I was going to do a detailed review of these sites, but I'll be honest, I rarely, if ever, actually open emails from these folks. See, these sites and their ilk suffer from that epitome of first world problems. Too much of a good thing. If you can manage to finish one free book per day, let alone three or even more, the hat on my balding 30-something head is off to you. This flood of freebies is why I carefully covered myself by saying these might be useful to you. Beyond the time it would take to sift through all these books, these sites all seem to offer titles that are free for only a little while, maybe only a few days or weeks, which is completely counter to the ethos of this segment. I want books that are not only free today, but likely to still be free in the next month or even next year. So I just don't find it that useful. Also, I highly suspect that many of the books are, quote, sponsored results, and I just prefer to find gems on my own. Still, I hope these will be useful to you. Look for links on the show blog, cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com. As I move forward in today's review, you first need to know that the author and I have a bit of history. Not a personal history, mind you. Given that she was cold in the ground less than a year after my birth, that would have been quite impossible. No, my history has more to do with a run-in with some of her modern-day adherents, who call themselves the Objectivists. Yes, folks, today I review my nemesis, Anne Rand. I first encountered Rand's modern minions at college. Being a large school, there were enough Rand fans for an objectivist group. My first experience of them was as they were set up across from another group that was trying to raise funds and awareness to fight world hunger. The objectivists, meanwhile, were serving cake. As in Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake, cake. My understanding as I heard them talking to other students was that, based on the writing of Ayn Rand, they believe that the greatest good for society comes when all people look out just for their own best interest. So it is morally justified, nay, our duty, to be heartless bastards and complete dicks to the rest of humankind, as we care only about numero uno. I may be taking some liberties with the paraphrase there. Suffice it to say, I took the only option open to my nerdy self. I girded up my loins, turned my screw to the sticking point, and prepared in many other ways that don't sound like double entendre, and made a political cartoon for the campus paper. Those of you keeping score at home may recall from a previous episode that I had no business drawing in any visual medium. This all comes around to say that, fair or not, Rand landed on my life list of enemies. Yep, Anne Rand and Pizzeria Uno, the two places I swore I'd never go. Another long story lurks there for Pizzeria Uno, as you might imagine. 
However, I recently opted to give Rand a chance, as the pizzeria already had their chance, and old Anne technically never got a first. When I ran across Anthem by Rand in the public domain, I decided it was time to know my enemy, as it were. We jump into the story with a first-person narrative voice of someone telling us what a sin it is to even be writing this book. It took me several pages to get what was going on, because the narrator just happens to speak in the first-person plural. Yep, in this particular dystopia, individual identity has become so degraded that it has extended to the language. All men have become one, or perhaps were driven to oneness, to the extent that they cannot help but think of themselves only in terms of the group. It's an interesting conceit at the beginning, but I'll confess to my utter annoyance with it by the end. Okay, Anne, got it. Thank you. Can I buy an I, please? Our humble narrator is known only by the designation Equality 72521 and was assigned by the Council of Vocations to labor forever as a street sweeper. But while taught from childhood that P or they is the same as all other people, P or rather they know, knows that he, they are unique. See how confusing that gets? Still, I'll give Anne this. Her writing style is descriptive and compelling. I can see how one might be taken in and convinced by force of language alone. Here's an example from early in the book. It is dark here. The flame of the candle stands still in the air. Nothing moves in this tunnel save our hand on the paper. We are alone here under the earth. It is a fearful word, alone. The laws say that none among men may be alone, ever and at any time, for this is the great transgression and the root of all evil. But we have broken many laws, and now there is nothing here save our one body, and it is strange to see only two legs stretched on the ground, and on the wall before us the shadow of our one head. The walls are cracked, and water runs upon them in thin threads without sound, black and glistening as blood. We stole the candle from the larder of the home of the street sweepers. We shall be sentenced to ten years in the palace of corrective detention if it be discovered, but this matters not. It matters only that the light is precious, and we should not waste it to write, when we need it for that work which is our crime. Nothing matters save the work, our secret, our evil, our precious work. Equality is a man of secrets in this society. Among them is his great transgression of preference, in particular for a woman working in the fields named Liberty 53000. He deepens the societal sin by harboring his own secret name for her, the golden one, for her beautiful yellow hair. And he goes even deeper than these private transgressions when he discovers a manhole cover that leads down to a section of abandoned subway tunnel from the old, unmentionable times. He makes us a regular enclave to read ancient texts he has stolen and to engage in, well, science. This resonates along the same frequency as George Orwell's 1984, especially the moments where Winston Smith escapes to a supposedly secure safe house. While there are often vivid descriptive moments here, this is also where the strings holding up my suspension of disbelief get rudely cut. 
Because while in the tunnel, Equality 72521 rediscovers how to use incandescent light bulbs, after which he presents his discovery and is forced to flee society for his act of independence, his love interest, Liberty, following him close behind. This in a world where those in the home of the scholars took apparently centuries to create such innovations as wax candles and clear glass in its strict egalitarian manner. Rand is obviously trying to make the argument that a single individual allowed to take risks and innovate beats a large group that has to agree completely before taking each step. She is, of course, completely right and deeply, profoundly mistaken. Thomas Edison, in our reality, might have been an independent inventor, but he was also the product of centuries of research into electricity, artificial lightning, the creation of a vacuum, probably even the first guy to make a flippin' torch. Edison wasn't even the first to make a patented incandescent bulb, if you can believe it. That distinction goes to Mr. Schwann of the UK, who sued Edison for a patent infringement. And won. This is all to argue that society works best when there is both the group exchanging ideas freely and the individual pursuing innovation without regard to his or her peers. The idea that Mr. Equality could understand all the complicated technology needed for a functioning light bulb, working in his spare time with no background in technology more complicated than a push broom, and no one with whom to collaborate is absurd possibly impossible. But, of course, presenting any sort of middle ground would not support Rand's agenda. This kind of dichotomy of one extreme or the other pervades Anthem, and frankly, it drives me nuts. Her argument, if I may be granted the indulgence of putting words in Rand's mouth, is, look at this terrible society that results from perfect equality. Therefore, the ideal society will be one in which all individuals seek the highest good that they can achieve for themselves and no others. It's such horseshit. And yeah, I just bleep myself. You take any good to a far enough extreme and you'll arrive at evil, sure as shooting. Pure quality and pure individualism both mess it all up. I'll beg your pardon if you're an objectivist, but I don't see how one can honestly agree with this philosophy, fully understand it, and still sleep at night without becoming a heartless, hollow shell of a human being. No offense intended. Well, maybe a little. Seriously, in my mind, objectivists essentially see starving children on television, slam their fists on the armrest, and say, Damn it, I'm going to go do something about that. I'm going to go buy an Xbox. Anyway, while the book's credibility was basically shot for me after this, there was still enough plot and beautiful language for me to go ahead and finish up this relatively short work. That'll change with the last two chapters. In the chapter before, our hero and heroine escape through the woods and eventually, luckily, stumble upon an undamaged cabin, which is full of books from the unmentionable times. They learn much from these, including, perhaps unsurprisingly, the first person singular. And, with this exciting new freedom now open to them, they become really preachy, and boring, and prideful. Take, as point of fact, the names the two choose for themselves, Prometheus and Gaia, the Greek goddess of Earth. Frankly, I like them better as numbered concepts. 
Here's a little sample of how it reads. My future is clear before me. The saint of the pyre had seen the future when he chose me as his heir, as the heir of all the saints and all the martyrs who came before him, and who died for the same cause, for the same word, no matter what name they gave to their cause and their truth. And so, Rand completes the transformation from possibly legitimate dystopian novel to polemic against human equality in a mere twelve chapters. Sorry, Anne. You're still on my list. As usual, check out my website at cheapskatesreview.wordpress.com to find links to the book. All right, that's all today for Cheapskates. Theme music is from Regarding Your Brains by the great Jonathan Colton under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial license. You can find more of his work at www.jonathancolton.com. This is Adam reminding you that free doesn't have to mean cheap. There you go. Adam, what can I say about you? <laughs> Took a while to get out there. Sorry about that, lad. Next up is part two of Adrift on the Sea of Rains by Ian Seals. And what we'll do as well, Adam's kindly just clipped together the, you know, the abbreviations and the glossary. Just a little, just to give you a little heads up again, what some of the words mean and some of the abbreviations mean. So again, Ian Seals, what can I say? I've had quite a number of emails about this story, do you know what I mean? And comments on kind of Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. You know what I mean? A cracking, Ian, cracking story. Thank you so much for letting Starship Sova, you know, and letting Adam just bloody rewrite write it sometimes. That's just fantastic. So what we'll do is we'll just jump straight in and we'll play Adam's little intro first. <laughs> A7LB, the technical designation for the Apollo spacesuit in the story, a variation on the suit most of us are familiar with. CSI, not crime scene investigation. It stands for coalyptic sequence initiation. It's a term relating to space navigation. EVA, extravehicular activity. Anytime you go outside of a station or spacecraft in a suit. LEM, pronounced LEM, it stands for Lunar Excursion Module. This is a spidery-looking craft that actually lands onto the moon. Sales introduces something new, the A-LEM, or Augmented LEM, which is an update and improvement to our version. APS, Ascent Propulsion System, part of a LEM used to lift it from the moon. DPS, Descent Propulsion System, part of a LEM used to guide it to a landing. LEVA, Lunar Excursion Visor Assembly, the visor on the front of a spacesuit's bubble that can be adjusted up and down. PLSS, pronounced PLIS, it stands for Personal Life Support System. This is the backpack to the spacesuit. Last time, on a drift on the Sea of Rains, by Ian Sales. While NATO forces and the USSR skirmish along the Iron Curtain, Colonel Vance Peterson, a United States Air Force pilot, was assigned a six-month tour as the commanding officer of Falcon Base, the United States Strategic Observation Post located on the moon. He was joined by Dr. Keller and the Bell, 
a torsion field generator capable of evolving wormholes to an alternate parallel Earth, a Nazi Wunderwaffe liberated at the end of World War II. Now it is two years later, and the Earth is a blasted, lifeless ruin. With supplies nearing exhaustion, tensions rise as hopes fade for the nine stranded men. And now, part two. It soon transpires that the men of Falcon Base can listen, but they cannot be heard. They try to contact someone using the S-band, but no one responds. They have no idea why. Perhaps their equipment is faulty, although the self-tests say not. Perhaps the Earth no longer listens on those frequencies. Perhaps the Earth has no dish directed at the moon. It doesn't matter. Now the men of Falcon Base have a home to return to. All it requires is for someone to go there and tell them about the castaways on the Sea of Rains. Do they even have a space program, asks Kendall. We don't know how far they've evolved from our Earth. So we show them how to do it, replies Alden with a grin. Big Alden, always the most serious of them all. The corn-fed Midwesterner who says little, and then only after great deliberation. The dedicated engineer test pilot who is always worth listening to. The man Peterson is sure he has not heard say a word for nearly a year. Newbeck at the telescope lets out a whoop. They crowd around him like kids, demanding to know what he's found. Can't be sure, he says with glee, but I reckon we got there a space station in orbit. Peterson pushes his way through the unruly astronauts. He tugs at Newbeck's shoulder. Let me see, he orders. Is it freedom? No, no, too small. Newbeck glances down at Peterson's expectant face and adds with a cheerful insolence. Sir, <laughs> too small, but it's an orbital platform for sure. They can make out little detail. The space station is indeed smaller than Freedom, a collection of perhaps seven or eight modules with only three or four pairs of solar cell wings. The Earth's space program, it seems, is less advanced than theirs. They gaze at each other in wonder. The same thought is written on their faces in the different languages of their features. It can be done. There's an augmented lunar module with an ascent stage out there on the Sea of Rains, an LEM for the trip from the moon to the Earth. The augmented LEM can't land, but there's no need, because there's a space station orbiting the Earth. Imagine their faces, Peterson thinks. Imagine the expression on the faces of those guys in the space station when they hear a knock on the hatch, and there's some guy in a spacesuit outside. Imagine what they'll say when they hear there's a whole bunch more on the moon. He looks across at Kendall, and the resentment, the simmering anger, is gone. It's clear space now, like the abrupt luminous moment he used to feel as his North American F-108D rapier pierced the clouds, and he found himself flying above a landscape of pillowy white. Sound has fallen away. Vision of preternatural sharpness, is all. Then hearing would return, the muted roar of the JY-93 turbojets, the hiss of his headphones, the vibration of the airframe. Peterson is not ready to feel gratitude. Kendall and the bell may have brought them all home, but Peterson will not thank the man yet. Later, perhaps. Once they stand on the soil of the good green earth... Perhaps by then he will have come to terms with the debt he owes the scientist and his Nazi weird science. Higher, further, faster. Peterson's career has taken him one step beyond the last with each move, which was neither an unusual nor an unexpected career path for an officer of his caliber. 
After flying hypersonic reconnaissance missions 35 miles above the Earth, close enough to space the sky above him was black, and the only blue lay beneath his aircraft, as though he were skimming across the surface of a vast, curved lake. After flying so near to space he could almost touch it, the only step up was orbit, and the USAF plainly thought he had the right stuff because they asked him to try out for their astronaut corps. They'd been launching Saturn IBs out of the Slick 6 at Vandenberg for over a decade, and they even had their own line of Apollo spacecraft called Phobos. But they would have preferred to throw space planes into orbit. All that research at Edwards AFB they'd paid for, lifting bodies like the Martin Marietta X-24 and the Northrop M2F-3, and even the Boeing X-20 dinosaur, though it never flew. So instead, the USAF happily bent technology of North America and Grumman to its own uses, adding military hardware to Apollo capsules, turning plowshares into swords. And now Peterson lay on his back, feet in the air, wedged between two other astronauts, an expensive gray instrument panel before him, and waited for the gentle push in the back, which would tell him the Stage 1's eight H-1 rocket engines had ignited. He'd spent the last 12 months training for this mission, and he knew more about this Apollo spacecraft than he had ever known about the aircraft he'd flown, the interceptors, the reconnaissance planes. He knew the placement and function of each switch, dial, and readout. Yet if anything malfunctioned during the launch, he could do nothing. He was merely a passenger, and all his training had done was teach him the facts and figures over which he had no control or influence. From somewhere far below him came a low rumble, as if a distant drop door to hell had just opened, and he felt a slow pressure begin to build between his shoulder blades. The capsule jerked from side to side, only fractions of a degree, but noticeable, as those eight engines gimbled on their 1,600,000 pounds of combined thrust, and everything was vibrating, the readouts a blur, and he imagined the launch tower slowly sliding past the Saturn 1B rose on a tower of flame and thunder. 146 seconds later, Peterson was jerked forward against his straps, and then moments later, kicked painfully back into his seat as the second stage ignited. But the ride was now smoother, although the roar transmitted the length of the Stage 4 section was louder. Ten minutes after they had launched, the J-2 engine cut off, and the silence fell to Peterson like a presentiment of catastrophe. A flame-out, perhaps, and his hands itched for a stick to hold, for means to control this errant craft. He'd brought hypersonic planes down to dead-stick landings at Groom Lake after crossing oceans at Mach 6. He'd hit the ground at 200 knots in an F-108D supersonic interceptor after Mach 3 dashes to the distant early warning line, and he felt his present lack of control, his inability to pilot keenly. Something rose past him, a washer floating serenely across his vision. So he relaxed his arms and they lifted up of their own accord until his hands bobbed and swung before his face and he felt a momentary fear as though he had lost control of his limbs and jerked his hands back down and balled them into fists. As he shifted in his seat, he realized he could no longer feel his rear pressing into the surface beneath it, and he began to relax and revel in this strange new freedom, his ties to earth so weak he could no longer feel them, and they no longer affected him, and it was enough to make him forget he was only a passenger on this trip. This was a taxi mission. The spacecraft would rendezvous with space station freedom, and the three astronauts aboard would spend the next eight weeks in the station's military module, although Peterson had spent so long in mock-ups and simulators in the USAF's own weightless environment training facility at Vandenberg, he felt as though he'd already completed the mission. 
This detailed and exhaustive training the astronaut corps practiced still took some getting used to, even though everything he would be doing in space again and again and again until it was written into the very fabric of his muscles, until every possible eventuality had been studied and plotted and planned and documented. It meant he felt like a puppet when it came to the actual doing of it. A weird sense of deja vu accompanied every flick of a switch, every meter reading taken, every report made to mission control. And yet the mission itself was easy enough. Just spy on the USSR and its forces in Iraq using Space Station Freedom's powerful telescopes and cameras. It was only the location which dictated the depth of training. Only the best of the best allowed in orbit. And even then they could not go without the most extensive preparation for all that they were the elite of elites. All that training, education, and skills applied only to watching brief. Though whatever they saw they could do nothing about as they had no weapons, no means of attack aboard the space station, and would be powerless bystanders should the Soviets finally bite the bullet and use those occasional border clashes with NATO troops on the border between a Turkey and Iraq as provocations for war. They were trapped. But now there is an escape. All but Kendall gather in the wardroom to discuss their options, squeezing about a single table, but unlike at mealtimes, confidently, keenly meeting each other's gazes. It occurs to Peterson he has lived with these men for two years, but he barely knows them. He sees seven men he knows chiefly by their reputations and the psychological profiles in their records. Their faces are as familiar to him as their own, but they might well be gold visors of spacesuit helmets, for all their expressions tell him what each is thinking. Not once since they became isolated on the moon have they worked together. He trained extensively with Curtis for the trip here, but once they had landed, each had their separate duties, and since they lost Earth, he's barely exchanged a dozen words with the man. And now, now the Curtis he knew is not the fevered-looking man on the other side of the table, with arms folded across a stack of ring binders. The moon has changed them all. Despair has made strangers of them. But now, with salvation a very real possibility, they are no longer uncomfortable in each other's company. Hope has made amiable strangers of them. Hope. Half a dozen modules in low Earth orbit. An elusive hope. They need to find a way to reach the space station. They have one augmented limb ascent stage left, and Peterson gives thank it still remains not launched out of desperation by one of them during the past two years. A thought occurs to him. How to get from lunar orbit to Earth? We need another engine for trans-Earth injection, Peterson says. We can wrap a rocket engine out of one of the descent stages, says Bartlett. They're throttleable. What about fuel? demands Fulton. How are you going to fuel the burn? You think maybe we can just brew up some Arizine 50 out of moon rocks? Both the DPS, Descent Propulsion Systems, and APS, Ascent Propulsion Systems, are powered by aerosene 50 and dinitrogen tetroxide. The latter they can perhaps manufacture through the catalytic oxidation of ammonia, but aerosene 50 is beyond their capabilities. For it, they need sodium hypochlorite as well as ammonia. The third ingredient of aerosene 50, unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine, requires a chemical plant. Bartlett gestures dismissively. All those descent stages on the mare, he says. Each one has a minute, maybe half a minute of aerosene 50 left in the tanks. So where do we put the DPS? asks Newbeck. Ain't no room in the limb. There's a defeatist whine in the man's voice, and for a moment, 
Peterson calms himself enough to reply. We bolt it to the goddamn back, he snaps. Bartlett shakes his head. We're going to have to put it on top, he says, or we throw off the center of gravity. We don't need the drug assembly for docking, so we rip it out and we build us a frame to put it there for the new DPS. Fulton is not convinced. You reckon we can get 20,000 pounds of fuel from all the descent stages? Why not, says Bartlett. Say you burn about 90% of that on the way down. That's got to leave between 150 and 200 pounds per limb. There's going to be some losses decanting it, Fulton replies. Peterson watches the two argue back and forth. The others are content to let them thrash it out. Fulton has always played the skeptic, but for that, he might have been commander of Falcon Base. Bartlett is a smart guy, perhaps after Alden the smartest guy on the moon. It won't work, says Alden in his slow, careful way. Bartlett turns on him. Sure it'll work, he insists. Alton shakes his head. How much does the ascent stage weigh? 10,024 pounds, says Curtis from memory. You add descent propulsion system onto that, plus 20,000 pounds of fuel, continues Alden, and the ascent system is not going to reach lunar escape velocity. Its thrust is 3,500 force pounds, says Curtis. You can get maybe 12,000 pounds into lunar orbit with that. We don't need 20,000 pounds of fuel, Bartlett points out. We only need enough for the trans-Earth burn. Again, Curtis quotes the figure from memory, the command module is 66,871 pounds fully loaded with 22,500 force pounds thrust. You need a 203-second burn to make it. See, says Bartlett, our land will be maybe one-fifth of that. As long as we get the delta V we need from the added propulsion, it's too heavy. Alden repeats. He reaches for one of Curtis's manuals and opens it to the back. He takes hold of a blank page, looks questioningly at Curtis, and gestures removing the page from the binder. Curtis nods warily. Alden rips out the page. Curtis winces. Alden pulls a pencil from his pocket and, brow furrowed, begins jotting down equations and solving them. The others watch him. They sit in silence and watch as Alden fills a page with closely written maths. Peterson leans close. He thinks some of the equations might look familiar. He sees delta V and exhaust velocity and specific impulse, and he remembers a classroom at the Johnson Space Center and some pencil neck with pocket protectors and a blackboard covered in alphabet soup. No one says a word for the 15 minutes it takes Alden to work through his calculations. When he finishes, he looks up from the piece of paper, and his distant gaze cannot hide his disappointment. Well demands Peterson. Alden shakes his head heavily. That 35,000 force pounds, he says, is not going to get us more than 6,000 feet per second with all that weight. Lunar escape velocity, quotes Curtis, is 7,800 feet per second. God damn, says Fulton. Why not leave the DPS? asks Scott. Hot damn, says Fulton. That could work. We don't need most of the descent stage, Scott says, so we can save weight by leaving some of it behind like a launch cradle. Alden frowns. He takes another blank page from the manual, without asking for permission from Curtis, and sets about recalculating specific impulses, weights, thrusts, and lunar escape velocity. 
He does so quicker than previously, but it still takes almost ten minutes. He nods slowly as he solves the final equation and says, It adds up. We can do it. We can do what, exactly, asks Peterson. We can use the descent propulsion system to get the ascent stage into lunar orbit, explains Fulton. Then, use the ascent system for the trans-Earth injection burn. You've only got 10,000 pounds of limb. You can easily get the delta V. You can't throttle the APS, Bartlett argues. It's 35,000 force pounds or nothing. It's about the delta V, not the thrust, replies Fulton. The numbers, Alden says to Bartlett, don't support your solution. The only way to get to 60,000 feet is using the DPS. Bartlett stiffens. His features adopt a look of stubborn intensity. He's used to getting his own way. Alden is never wrong. And Bartlett knows it. God damn it, he says. We need the throttle for the burn. It won't work if you can't get into orbit, Alden insists. He slides his two pages of algebra across the table to Bartlett. You check my numbers, he says. There's no suggestion in his tone that the calculations might contain a mistake. Alden wants Bartlett to check his figures to see for himself the truth of Alden's solution. Bartlett continues to argue, but Peterson knows Alden has already won. Bartlett is just saving face. He can see the other's expressions. He knows they expect him to fold. To bow out with a final zinger to leave him the last word. They've seen it all before. It's the way Bartlett operates. Okay, Jose, Bartlett says. I guess we're on our way. The joke, an old one when Peterson qualified for the astronaut corps, prompts Juan's smiles. Curtis opens the manual and flips through pages to a cutaway of the limb's descent stage. He points to each of the fuel tanks and says, We pull these out and refill them with the salvaged fuel. Then we cut here, 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 and here, and loosen these bolts here. So when the DPS fires, it lifts right out of the descent stage. Bartlett pulls the manual to him from under Curtis's hand, ignoring the other man's hurt look. Peterson thinks about intervening, but then decides this is too important. We're going to have to put in some bracing, Bartlett says, or this thing's going to fold like a cheap sofa. Now they have all agreed on a way to get into lunar orbit, the discussion moves on to the next stage of the journey. How to get to low Earth orbit. Modifying an augmented limb is something they can do with their hands. It is real. They have a workshop. They have tools. They may be aviators, but they're also practical men, happiest when they're using their hands. Control stick in one, throttle in the other. They fly by feel as much as by instruments. But getting their modified limb into lunar orbit to Earth orbit is not something they can do with a wrench or a screwdriver. They can't even rely on the augmented limb's primary navigation guidance section to do the hard work for them. Those 55 switches, 45 circuit breakers, and 13 indicators can only be used to land an augmented limb on the moon and later fly it to lunar orbit rendezvous with a command module, as per flight paths programmed into the limb guidance computer. Perhaps they can reprogram it. They certainly cannot rewire it. The wires are so fine, using space gloves, they just break them. They will have to calculate manually when to trigger the burn for trans-Earth injection, and for how long, and where in the limb's orbit about the moon they must light it. And they must do it exactly right in order to hit a target 8,000 miles in diameter, 250,000 miles away. How the hell do I navigate? asks Peterson. They look at him. 
I, says Bartlett. Goddamn right, replies Peterson. Who you think was going? On your own? Asks Scott. The augmented limb can fly four into orbit. It's three days to Earth, Peterson says. We put the consumables for that aboard and we're going to be close to the weight limit. One man is safer. We should draw straws, complains Newbeck. You should obey goddamn orders, snaps Peterson. You've got the optical telescope, says Scott, deflecting the argument. You use that. We'll have to do some number crunching on the computer here to get the values to input, but the guidance computer should handle it. Peterson had flown the augmented limb that brought him to Falcon Base down from lunar orbit to Mare Imbrium. In truth, he'd had little to do. The lunar module guidance computer had done everything. He'd kept his hand by the hand controller, but he'd not needed to take over. It had been a year since he abdicated his command, but Peterson feels the mantle of leadership settle once again on his shoulders. They might resent his decision to fly the mission himself, but they are looking at him now, and it's clear he is in charge. He organizes them into teams. Alden, who knows the maths, and Curtis, who's memorized the manuals, will calculate the variables for TEI and Earth orbit insertion. They will also draw up a list of the verbs and nouns Peterson will need to pilot the mission. Peterson, because he has the most EVA experience, McKay and Fulton will salvage the fuel tanks from the limbs on the Sea of Rains. Bartlett, Newbeck, and Scott will build the equipment needed to transfer fuel from those tanks into something they can use to refuel the limb Peterson will fly. While Alden gets started on the calculations, Bartlett, Scott, and Curtis help Peterson, McKay, and Fulton into their spacesuits. It's crowded in the suiting-up area, especially with three of them in bulky A7LBs, but no one complains. They're doing something. They have something to do. Peterson is ready first, his polycarbonate helmet locked on, Leva in place, his pliss on his back and hoses plugged into the connectors on his torso. He steps over the combing into the airlock, turns about clumsily, and watches as both McKay and Fulton have their helmets lowered onto their heads and locking rings twisted into place. Outside on the lunar surface, Peterson hurries ahead. All this is second nature to him. The lunar jog, leaping from one foot to the other, graceful despite the bulk of his backpack. McKay struggles to keep up, but his breathing is not enough to trigger the microphone, so he appears to suffer in silence. Fulton has gone in the other direction, to fetch the rover. They will need it to drag the tanks back to Falcon Base. At the Garden of Descent stages, Peterson halts before the first lamb. Dust puffs out around his feet, and then drops abruptly to the ground. It occurs to him he will finally learn which of the gold-skirted machines landed here first. They need to check every one, and one of them has that plaque on its leg. But for now, he reaches up and begins to strip the gold mylar from the descent stage's side. Peterson hung beneath the belly of a North American B-70 Valkyrie, strapped into the cockpit of his Lockheed Martin SR-91 Aurora, five minutes away from being launched on a high-speed, high-altitude reconnaissance flight over the USSR. According to his instruments, the B-70 was flying at Mach 2.5 at 60,000 feet, but the SR-91's mission would take Peterson and his reconnaissance system's operator to hypersonic speeds and three times that altitude, far out of range of Soviet interceptors like the MiG-25 Foxbat. 
This was Peterson's first flight in the SR-91, but he'd spent hundreds of hours in the simulator, and he knew his way around this cramped cockpit with a familiarity that made a long for the simplicity of his F-108 rapier. Or even the Habu, the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird he'd been flying until last year. If it weren't for the buffeting, this could be another simulator run, another chance for him to outthink the guys running the computers, as if there weren't enough opportunities for something to go wrong with an aircraft like this, which flew so high and so fast. Nor were the Soviets going to sit and watch him as he flew over them at Mach 6. They were going to try to bring him down, send up interceptors, though they had nothing capable of speeds greater than Mach 3.6, at least both NATO and the Pentagon thought so, but there was always a chance they'd rolled out some super black interceptor in the last few months. The USSR had nothing like the SR-91, that much was certain. The details of the Aurora's PDWE, Pulse Detonation Wave Engine, were so secret not even Peterson knew how it worked. Although the first time he'd seen the aircraft's distinctive donuts-on-a-rope jet exhaust, it had come as a shock since it resembled nothing he'd ever seen before, and he could almost believe the lame-ass disinformation the USAF had put out about flying saucers and aircraft reverse-engineered from UFOs which had crashed in Roswell back in 1947. There was not much Peterson could see from the SR-91's office, as his only view of the outside was provided by a television screen on his instrument panel and the small periscope he'd used to land the bird. Since he'd climbed into the SR-91 back on the ground at Groom Lake, he'd been going through one checklist after another, keeping himself busy as the aircraft was carried up into the air and north to the pole in his launch point, which had just been reached according to the B-70's commander who told him to prep for release. So Peterson put one hand on his stick and the other on the throttle and stared so hard at the TV screen his vision blurred until he was looking at an impressionist landscape of clouds lit by pointillist sun. His reconnaissance systems operator, Rizzo, seated behind him in a sealed compartment of his own, began counting down the moment until separation and, as the moment grew closer, it struck Peterson that for all the artificiality of this sealed cockpit, in which he sat in his S-1030 pressure suit and its televised view of the sky outside, this was a real mission. If an interceptor shot him down, if a missile got him, he couldn't just raise the canopy and walk away laughing and joking. At that moment, the Rizzo called out, now! The SR-91 shook, there was a loud clunk, and Peterson felt his stomach lurch upwards as the plane plummeted. But the TV screen still showed only that placid sea of cirrostratus. Clear, the B-70 commander told him, and the Rizzo confirmed that the mothership had banked and was climbing for the return flight to Nellis Air Force Base. Peterson ignited the pulse engine, pushed the throttle forward, and gently brought the stick back. There was a kick in the back of his head, and acceleration pressed him into his encapsulated ejection seat, fiercer than anything the F-108D or the Habu could have pulled, and he heard his Rizzo let out a grunt over the intercom. His instruments told him they were approaching Mach 6 and were already 120,000 feet as they arced over the north. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. 
Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Pull. Cross the Arctic Ocean towards the Kara Sea. They were firmly in the mission envelope now. Flying hypersonic 35 miles above the ground, halfway to space, the TV's dark as night. But he was on autopilot and would be, all the way south, 1,800 miles into the USSR. The Soviets were building up something near Saratov, but the last two satellites to overfly the area had been shot down by Soviet hunter-killer birds, and the Pentagon didn't want to risk another one. Not that the SR-91 had a much lower price tag than a spy satellite, but it was easier to get in the air. At 200,000 feet, they started their loop over the Caspian Sea, which would take them back up over Poland and Norway, and over Saratov. His Rizzo says, Wow, look at all them birds! Peterson stands at the commander's position in the limb and gazes out at the lunar surface. Etched across the windows are the reticulations and markings of the landing point designator, graded in feet, as if life on the moon can be subjected to measurement. And then he thinks the days and months of isolation, the miles he has ranged across Meribrium and the foothills of the Apennines. He's counted every moment and every footstep, and although he cannot remember their number, he has indeed measured his exile here. That ends now. Fifty feet away stand eight figures in white spacesuits, dusted with dark gray. As he watches, one figure bounces slowly up a couple of feet and then back down. Another, feet wide, one arm out from his side, raises his hand to a golden visor in salute. Peterson is reminded of a photograph from the old Apollo days, and he wonders if that picture led him to this current situation. He tries to remember, but the memory has long since been lost. What did he think back then? That he too wanted to visit the dead world, to stand in that gray sand beneath the black sky? For the past two years, he has done just that on a daily basis. That ends now. It is time to go. Everything has been checked and checked again. Alden and Peterson have spent hours entering data into guidance, navigation, and abort systems. Alden has provided him with a cue card for the flight. He's aligned the LEMS inertial guidance platform using Polaris as a referent. Though the LEMS guidance computer has a program for the flight, Program 12, Power Descent, he cannot use it as it controls ascent propulsion, and he will be flying with descent propulsion. There is, unsurprisingly, no program to use the descent propulsion system for an ascent. For the seven and a half minutes he is in flight, he must rely on the accumulated velocity, altitude rate, and altitude display, and he must fly by hand so they match the figures Alton has written on the cue card. This is it, I guess, he says. He's pressurized the limbs cabin and is wearing his helmet and gloves. He's attached the waist restraints, but he knows they are unnecessary. Though he's never experienced an ascent from the lunar surface, this will be his first. He's heard they as smooth and gentle as an elevator ride. Master on, he says, flicking the switch. He flicks down descent power plant isolation valve to fire, followed by helium pressurization descent start. If they have not recharged the helium pressurization system for the DPS correctly, they will all die here on the moon. 
One month it took them to decant sufficient fuel from the Lem truck's descent stages to fill the cylindrical tanks in the augmented Lem in which he now stands. Two tanks of fuel and two of oxidizer, each holding 67.3 cubic feet of salvaged Aerozyne 50 and dry nitrogen tetroxide. One month and so many setbacks. One month and Fulton will be forever scarred on one arm where some Aerozyne spilled and burned him. I've got a light on tank one, he says. Tank two is good. Scott is acting as Capcom for his launch. He says, we're ready when you are. Peterson holds out his gloved hands, palms down, fingers splayed. He's an excellent pilot, but he's not the best of them at Falcon Base. That would be Newbeck, but Peterson is not going to let that slacker fly this mission. It's been a long time since Peterson flew anything, not just the two years trapped here on the moon, but even before that he had time only to keep up his hours. The descent will be the most difficult flight he has ever flown, and he wonders if he's up to it. If he's not, his men will die. He cannot allow that to happen. Master off, he says. Engine arm to descent. He sets the manual throttle control to 100% and puts one gloved hand about the thrust translation hand controller. He sends the guidance computer to program 99. The index finger of his other hand hovers over the manual engine on button. It occurs to him this is Armstrong's historic moment in reverse. Peterson is making history by leaving the moon. He should say something suitable, but his mind is a blank. After two years, he is finally heading home. A sudden knot of pain forms in his chest, and he closes his eyes and tries to ignore the sharp, jagged thing that has replaced his heart. But is this ache prompted by his destination, and the certainty of loss it signifies? Or is it for his departure and the men he leaves behind? He refuses to see his mission as abandoning them. He is doing what every good commander should. He's going to save them. I'm coming back for you, he says. We know, says Scott. Godspeed. Peterson presses the manual engine on button. Aerozine 50 and dinitrogen tetroxide rush towards one another and explode. Dust blows out from beneath the limbs, spreading in a horizontal circle. Peterson enters now 94. Numbers appear on the display. Accumulated velocity, altitude rate, and computed altitude. They slowly increment as the limb rises from the lunar surface. The altitude tape meter and altitude rate tape meter both begin to climb. He focuses on the cross pointer, gently twitching the thrust translation hand controller and the attitude controller this way and that to keep the limb on course and the number slowly climbing towards the targets written on the cue card. This is real flying. This is not watching the instruments as a pilot calls out attitude and fuel levels. There's no command module in orbit to downlink flight path data to him. He's flying this spacecraft by feel. It is not the smoothest flight he's ever flown. At 480 feet, he begins the pitch over until he is flying over the lunar landscape. Craters and rills and undulating folds of lunar mountains rolling past him. He does not let his concentration lapse. He must focus. He's beginning to sweat now. The lens shadow runs like a spider across the gunpowder gray beneath him. When the numbers reach the targets on the cue card, he knows he's made it. He throttles back the engine to zero percent. The LEM is now in lunar orbit, but Peterson is not finished yet. He inputs now an 85, and now the guidance computer readout displays the residual velocity errors on all three axes. Under reaction control, he must fly until it shows all balls. When each line shows only zeros, he radios Falcon Base. Ready for CSI. 
Aiden's numbers have gotten him this far. Peterson trusts the man's calculations for co-elliptic sequence initiation are just as accurate. He enters P32. This program will put him into an orbit with a paraloon of 45 nautical miles. He's too low at present for trans-Earth injection. He punches valve 6, noun 11, and says, TIG is 000, mark 09, mark 35, mark 00. 935 confirm, replies Scott. Moments later, the view through the window before him shifts as the LEM's reaction control system fires and alters the spacecraft's orbit. The limb pitches up and the moon seems to swing beneath him. Now he can see the curve of its horizon and beyond it black space sprayed with stars. The earth slowly rises above the lunar landscape, blessing his flight with its light, and he marvels at the blue marble which once again shares the heavens. He is going home. After setting the oxygen control to direct O2, he unlocks and lifts his helmet from his head. The interior of the limb is chill, as cold as space, as cold as death, and his breath steams before his face. He sets abort stage to fire, and something shudders beneath his feet. He peers out the commander's window, and soon the distant stage floats into view. An abbreviated platform, its underside a collection of tanks and pipes and boxes, and in their center the blackened engine bell of the DPS. He watches it tumble and shrink as it falls back to the moon's surface. That sight, more than the view of the lunar surface from so high, brings home to him exactly what he has done, exactly where he is. There is no going back. He cannot land this spacecraft. All he can do is make the trans-Earth injection and hope he makes it. He abruptly remembers a plan to repurpose a lunar module as an orbiting lunar laboratory, a two-man space station. Someone is shown in the file, though he forgets who, one of the NASA pencil necks. Peterson could stay in orbit, just like that LEM lab, but he only has sufficient consumables for the three-day trip to Earth. And what would he study? The gradual death of his men at Falcon Base? He has been watching that for the past 12 months. He radios Falcon Base and asks for Alden to take the mic. I guess I'm ready, he tells him. No point in staying up here for much longer. The limb's guidance computer is not up to the job of firing the burn, so Alden has programmed the base's computer to make the necessary calculations. What do you have on the telescope? Alden asks. Star 37, replies Peterson, and reads off the trunnion angles. Now verb 2, and read me off, noun 47, noun 48, noun 81. There's a long moment of silence. Peterson hears the creak and pop of the limb as sunlight washes across it. That skin is paper thin. It will be no protection in space. He will have to wear a spacesuit for the entire trip and hope no micrometeoroid holds the hull. You got those numbers yet? He asks Falcon Base. Coming up, Scott replies. Your orbit's not nominal. Alden has to rejig some of his calculations. I got up here, goddammit, Peterson says. To him, it is achievement enough. No, it is a great achievement. Success against all odds. He will not be criticized. He adds, We knew it was going to be best guess. That was all we could do. Now he's apologizing. He shuts his mouth, his anger transferred from Scott to himself. Okay, says Scott. Alden's back. Alden's voice comes on the VHF. TIG is 003 Mark 05 Mark 25.00. Burn time is 343. You need a delta VT of 3046.8 FPS. Got it, Peterson replies. He scrawled the numbers on the back of the cue card. 
Losing signal, he tells Falcon Base. See you when I get back around the other side. There's no way he can check Alden's figures. He has to trust him. And he does. It is Alden's numbers which got him into orbit, even if it was not entirely nominal. And he trusts the man to give him the necessary time ignition and burn time. A target 8,000 miles across, a quarter of a million miles away. A fraction of a degree wrong, and he'll miss it completely. Soon enough, the limb swings back around, and Peterson can talk once again to Falcon Base. The mission timer on the instrument panel is counting up to 3 hours, 5 minutes, 28 seconds. Master on, he tells Falcon Base. Engine arm to ascent. He watches the timer, his finger poised over the manual engine on button. He knows enough about the LEM to know that the ascent system is not as powerful as a command module service propulsion system. Even at 100%, and that is the APS's only setting, it will need to fire for longer to give him the necessary delta V for a trans-earth injection. Even though the lunar module weighs one-sixth of a command service module. The mission timer flicks to 0030520003052100302522. The moment it displays 0030525, he pushes the manual engine on button. For one heart stopping second, nothing seems to happen. He turns to look back over his shoulder at the cylindrical bulk of the ascent system in the center of the cabin as if doing so would trigger ignition. But he can already feel a rumble in his boots. He returns his gaze to the window before him, and the moon is drifting away, its surface features shrinking and blurring, a gray beach of its surface losing texture and contour. And the mission timer shows 0030908, so he turns off the lens rocket motor. And there, finished. He feels the cessation of thrust, a sudden stillness, an immediate silence, though the roar of the APS had been little more than a faint hum translated through the floor of the spacecraft. He turns his attention to the cabin pressure. Has the force of the burn ruptured the cabin's delicate walls? Happily, it does not appear to have done so. Goodbye, he tells Falcon Base. Be well. Be patient. It's been an honor, sir, says Scott, and he sounds like he really means it. That whooping klaxon meant the distant early warning line was about to be breached. There were Soviet bombers over northern Canada, and it was Peterson's job to get up there, fast, and see that the U.S. and Canadian territoriality wasn't invaded. The YJ-93s of his North American F-108D rapier were spooling up now, kick-started by the ox power cart, and they lit with a roar as the JP-6 ignited. Their thunder filled the hangar, bouncing off solid concrete walls and roof like a joyous roar of a perfect storm. The lights and indicators on Peterson's instrument panel told him that all his systems were green, and then his Wizzo, his weapon system officer, said, Check. I got it. And that meant the Wizzo's data viewer and radar TV had been updated by the mission profile by SAGE, NORAD's vast and powerful computer, from the Sector Direction Center at Syracuse Air Force Base. And the Wizzo added, Says here they got Tupolev... TU-22M backfires in those new Mach 3 bombers, the Sukhoi T-4 blowtorch. But Peterson was busy confirming the autopilot data fade from Sage. And then he gave the crew chief a thumbs up and lowered the canopy. He was sealed in now, snug in the cockpit, the stick between his legs, everything reading green and the thunder from the YJ-93s muffled to a distant rumble. The moment the ghost signal came through, he advanced the throttles and released the brakes, and the rapier began to roll forward. 
Emerging from the alert barn onto the flat gray light in the sea of early morning mist, hazing the berms of the dispersal area. Minutes later, he was lined up at the end of the runway, watching his instruments as he waited for the world. And he twisted his head and saw his wingman lined up alongside him. And he felt a keenness he'd never experienced on training sorties, like he was on the edge of a sharp blade and he knew in his heart he was going to do some cutting of flesh today. He grinned inside his oxygen mask, gave the other pilot a thumbs up, and readied his hands on stick and throttles. It was up to Peterson to get this bird in the air. Then Sage would take over and fly it to the intercept and, once there, lock onto the targets, arm and release the AIM-47 missiles the F-108D carried should the situation warrant it. The signal came. Peterson pushed his throttles forward, released the brakes, and the F-108D began to roll forwards, the acceleration pushing him back into his ejection seat, the turbojets bellowing like the gods of thunder and lightning, and he called out, Rotate! and gently brought the stick back. The aircraft's nose lifted, the front wheels were off the ground, and he felt the F-108D unstick itself from the earth. And then they roared over the base fence and hauled back on the stick, lit the afterburner, and they rocketed skyward. It seemed like in no time at all they were at their operating altitude and powering north at long before they were past the mid-Canada line and fast approaching the Dew line where it marched across the frozen north of the country. And he saw something up ahead a smear of contrail miles long across the blue-white Arctic sky, and he knew it had to be one of the Soviet bombers, so he asked his Wizzo if it was a go or a no-go. The Wizzo told him it was on his scope, it was one of the T-4s doing Mach 2, and it was over the line, in Canadian territory, a legitimate target. There was nothing from the sector direction center, but Peterson didn't care. He was in the zone. He was focused, and the rest of the world had fallen away, left behind in their supersonic dash north. He saw only a world of whiteness, a distant haze of brightness, and in it the white-hot dot that was the sun. And his thoughts turned to the craft in which he sat, the weapons it carried, the purpose of those weapons, and his role in the defense of his homeland. So he armed one of his AIM-47 missiles, put his thumb over the kill button on the stick, and waited for the lock-on tone. And his Wizzo protested, but he ignored him, and the reticule on the projected display flashed, so he pressed his thumb gently, as if it was a hunting rifle's trigger, and not simply a button which triggered an electronic signal, and so fired actuators which pushed hydraulic rams. He heard with satisfaction the grinding of the bay doors opening, the thud of the missile release, and then a line of smoke hurtled ahead of the interceptor, writing a death sentence across the heavens. He was on intercept at Mach 3, so given enough time and sky, he could have caught the blowtorch, but the AIM-47 could do it so much faster. And so it did. He saw the impact, the sudden blossoming of flame on the T-4's flank, the enemy bomber shedding scattered panels which spun mirror bright in the sky as they fell, the curving smoke trails of debris as the aircraft broke apart. And his Wizzo said, Jesus Christ, you sure sh shouldn't have done that. He was right, of course, but back at the base, the colonel chewed him a new one, though they both knew it was a righteous kill, but their relations were hair-trigger, and neither side wanted to give the other provocation. Even so, they could only spin Peterson's kill as a victory of sorts, and he got a commendation medal. But he knew his days in tactical air command were numbered. Someone upstairs was going to make damn sure of that. Later, the Soviets shot down a USAFE Corvair F-106 Delta Dart out of Lindsay Air Station at Wiesbaden. Peterson himself had flown the 6 before his wing was upgraded to the rapier, and that sparked off a wave of incidents, culminating in an exchange of gunfire at Checkpoint Charlie during which a USMP shot and killed a Greppo, and so the Soviets walked away from the SALT II talks, and overnight, Brezhnev's rhetoric turned hawkish. 
imprisoned in his limb as it rockets towards freedom, though not, it seems, toward freedom, Peterson has plenty of time to reflect. He reports into Falcon Base at regular intervals. The voices of McKay, Curtis, Fulton, all their voices, translated into the same sing-song aviator speak on the radio. When he's not talking to them, there's little else to do but think. The limb is not built for comfort. It is not built for interplanetary journeys. It has only enough room for four men standing upright. Peterson, already familiar with his cramped interior, now knows it intimately. The function of every switch, readout, and valve, what is stowed where, the electronics hidden within the featureless boxes affixed to the walls. Only the microgravity makes it bearable. He floats in his spacesuit, without helmet and gloves, his breath chill, blind to the relentless gray of the cabin walls. He spends his days hovering over the drum of the ascent propulsion system, his feet to the rear of the cabin, watching the earth through the docking window. His destination corkscrews across the heavens as the limb rotates in barbecue mode. Moment by moment, the earth circles into view, larger than the moment before. And his heart grows stronger and beats more powerfully with each mile he draws nearer. He thinks about the good earth and his house in Lompoc. His blonde wife, Lee, his young boy, Mikey. Perhaps some version of Lee and Mikey live on this earth. Perhaps even a version of himself does. Right now, however, he is not capable of considering the consequences of that. He remembers sitting in his backyard beside the pool, a cold beer in his hand and the barbecue sizzling. He recalls looking up at the cloudless blue sky, seeing a spectral moon, and knowing he would soon be there on its surface. Now he approaches an earth he believed he'd lost forever, and he marvels at its jewel-like brightness in the dark and vasty deep. He feels a visceral connection to the blue planet, though it may well be a world as strange to him as the moon. Intellectually, he knows it is not the earth he lost. It is not the earth of his dreams and desires. But neither can it be a truly alien world. As the limb speeds closer, so time seems to compact. For hours pass through him and are lost. He performs his housekeeping tasks like an automaton, with no memory of his actions afterwards. He enters the pre-advisory data for the course correction as though he were nothing but a conduit for Alden's numbers. Always the blue beacon beckons. His senses seem to pour out of him, as though the docking window into cislunar space. His aspirations speed on ahead of the limb, and he imagines a hero's welcome, a loving reunion, a revitalized career, a real life again. Perhaps this earth has no bell, in which case the Wunderwaffe is not a curse but a prize beyond compare. Whenever the astronauts in Falcon Base speak to Peterson, they cannot hide their excitement. He feels their eagerness as he hurtles between two planets at 24,000 miles per hour. As the limb draws ever nearer, he senses emotion stronger still stirring within him beneath deep and placid waters. His heart beats faster. The chill within the limb bites at his exposed flesh more sharply. It takes an effort of will to prevent his hands from shaking. He can no longer bear to float motionless in the center of the cavern. It is far too passive. So he pulls himself down to the commander's position, fastens the waist restraints, and pitches the limb up so he now faces forward. With one gloved hand on the thrust translation hand controller and the other on the attitude controller, he surrenders to the illusion he is flying the spacecraft toward Earth.
Though the limb is far too frail to survive atmospheric re-entry, he pictures himself piloting the spacecraft to the ground, bringing it to a gentle touchdown in the parking lot at Mission Control. And then he remembers he'd left the descent stage in lunar orbit. At the correct time, Earth captures the limb and pulls it from its interplanetary flight path to swing about its massy presence. Blue smeared with white clouds fills the spacecraft's two windows. Peterson can see the shapes of the continents, the seared desert, the green of agriculture, and the sprawling hatchwork conurbations. Everything looks like he expected it, as he imagined it, as he dreamed of it. He fires the burn to put him in low orth orbit above the space station and waits for it to catch up with the limb. He rotates the limb until the windows face the ground, and he spends the time waiting for the space station, gazing in wonder at the Earth's surface. He can see the space station now below him, stark against the Earth, cut by shadows. Its shape, it is something like a cross, with a shaft and four arms at right angles to each other. Some of the modules are white, some are green. He frowns. As he draws closer, he can make out writing on one of the modules. He cannot read it. He blinks. Perhaps this earth is too far removed from his own. Perhaps they have an entirely different writing system. But no, he can make it out clearly now. He recognizes it. Cyrillic. This is not freedom, nor any version of it. It's a Soviet space station. An unreasoning anger fills him. The Soviets have won the war. He tries to picture a world dominated by the Reds. All starkly functional buildings and interminable queues of poorly dressed people. Does the U.S. still exist? Or is it now the United Socialist States of America? How many needed to die for his nation to relinquish its freedom? This is not the world he knows, nor any world he wants to know. The wonder he felt on approach is gone, refueled by a sour, hate-fueled rage. He reaches for the thrust translation hand controller and the attitude controller. A manual docking maneuver would have been tricky, but this is much easier. He fires a burst from the reaction control systems and drops into a lower orbit. The Soviet space station is no longer moving away from him as quickly. As he decreases his altitude, so his velocity increases, and he begins to gain on the Soviet station with each second. He wonders what the Soviets are saying to each other, to their ground control, as this alien spacecraft approaches them at speed. Do they even recognize it? Did the U.S. of this Earth go to the moon? He'll never know. Five minutes before impact, Peterson bails out. He puts on his helmet, backs into a pliss and secures the straps. He evacuates the cabin air and squeezes out through the exit hatch. As he drifts away, he watches the limb continue on its trajectory. He's dropped into a lower orbit and begins to overtake the space station. Reorienting himself so he's traveling backwards, he sees his spacecraft. An ungainly, fragile thing hit one of the station's modules. It crumples but so too does the side of the module. Something tears loose. Docking adapters bend and snap. A solar cell panel folds gracefully, hitting another module. Something blows, and a brief blossom of silent flame ruptures yet another module. Peterson wonders how many orbits he will make before the Earth captures him and drags him down. He's still pulling away from the space station, which is now broken into several pieces. He rolls over to look at the land so far below. He'll never reach it. At the speed he's traveling, he will burn up. He cannot feel sad. He's coming home, and he will never leave. 
He imagines he can feel rising heat, can see the first tinge of orange and yellow on his helmet's visor. But it will be many hours yet before he is low enough for that. At least he has had his revenge. The Soviets killed his world, the world of his dreams. But he has struck back. He tries to remember what the Russian word on the space station meant. Mir. World, he thinks. Or peace. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Ian's. Ian, thank you so much. And Logan, what can I say? A tremendous narration. Thank you so much. Difficult job, that one. I know it was, to be quite honest. I'm saying that as if I kind of know how to narrate. Do you know what I mean? I know how to listen, though, Logan. That's the thing. And I kind of, it, yeah, it certainly was. So well done. Big hats off to you there for that. Next up is Portry Planet. No matter, I can't now stop saying it like that, man. Portry Planet. No, Portry Planet, number 10. Elgin and the Dwarf Stars Awards Showcase. Diane, what's all this about? Welcome to Poetry Planet. I'm your guide, Diane Severson. It's been a while since a tour of the wonderful world that is Poetry Planet has graced the ether. In fact, it's been just over eight months. Shocking, I know. Did you miss me? Uh, don't answer that. The last edition of Poetry Planet was done just after I moved from Germany to Paris with my family. And since then, there have been a number of extenuating circumstances which have made working on a new Poetry Planet very difficult. Travel, lots of it. Illness, my own and my dad's. Plus, I took on another task, one I thought I should perform every other week. And that is to write a blog on science fiction poetry over at the newish Amazing Stories magazine. Check it out if you're interested. I write reviews and interviews, which naturally means I have a lot of reading to do as well. Well, be that as it may, I'm going to try and produce Poetry Planet a bit more than once every eight months from now on. So, without further ado... It's award season. The Hugo Awards were announced last weekend at Lone Star Con 3 in San Antonio, Texas. But... Did you realize that there is no Hugo Award or Nebula Award given for poetry? The Science Fiction Poetry Association has made up for that lack by creating a number of awards, all of which were officially awarded at Worldcon this year. The Reisling was the first such award for science fiction poetry. It is awarded in two categories, short, under 40 lines, and long, 40 lines and over. Next came the Dwarf Stars Award, which gives more attention to extremely short forms and poetry under 10 lines. This year, the SFPA introduced the Elgin Award in recognition of the best collection of poetry in full-length and chapbook-length categories. The winners and placing works for both the Elgin and the Dwarf Stars Award were announced on the SFPA website recently. As I said above, the Elgin Award is a new award, named in honor of the association's founder, Suzette Hayden Elgin. It is awarded to the best traditionally published chapbook, under 40 pages of poetry, and full-length book, 40 pages and over, and it is voted on by the SFPA membership. (music) 
The winners in the category for best chapbook are, in third place, The Edible Zoo by David C. Kopaska Merkel from Sams.Publishing. In second place, The House of Forever by Samantha Henderson, Raven Electric, Inc. And the winner of the Elgin Award is Out of the Black Forest by F.J. Bergman, Centennial Press. Let's listen to a poem from each of those chapbooks. Horseradish Sandwich When the munchies come to call, I'll eat anything at all. But my favorite dish is a horseradish sandwich. I love to nosh on lady fingers, cause their fancy flavor lingers. On a cruder plane or not, corn dogs really hit the spot. But when I'm king, I will decree horseradish sandwiches for me. Hot dogs are a favor of mine, although I hate the fur. And for catfish, oft I pine, especially when they purr. Still, my favorite dish of all, horseradish sandwich has it all. What I readily admit is, I think by now you've guessed it. What I love the most is a tasty, furry, maned and curried horseradish sandwich. When They Woke by Samantha Henderson Gamaquad was sealed when they woke, coughing stasis gel out of their lungs and staring at their metamorphosed comrades, their own changeling features twisted out of woof and warp in horror. There are no records of what happened next, only a red smear they left uncleaned on the canopy to remember. Of Beta and Epsilon, nothing Twisted tin for all they knew, or severed port strings caressing the ethereal side of those indifferent, implacable cargo doors. But after the frenzy, when the survivors, only partially maimed, calmed and decided upon another path than slaughter, that play was the way to greet death, as belabored air recycles wheezed on slower and slower. They embraced their deformities as fine-wrought masks, each finding Loki or the dog-faced boy or bird-headed demons or Indra descending, her heart held in her hand in the polished, useless surfaces set oblique in every corridor. And at the very end of time, all the heroes wanted to dance down at Medusa's in the dark. Tale by F.J. Bergman It was the last fairy's gift. They cut it off immediately, while the baby screamed. But it was back the next day, twitching and curly. By the time she was of age, to appear at court, bustles and farthingales had become de rigueur, an advantageous alliance that could not be repudiated. A magnificent wedding to the crown prince, a hunchback, She was warned to wear voluminous nightgowns, to lie on her back, always undress in the dark. But the royal bedroom was blazing with a hundred candles, a thousand mirrors. Her new husband slowly removed both of their clothes, speaking softly to her in the language she did not yet know. 
When she was naked, he kissed her, smiling. Then he turned his back to show her his unfolding wings. The winners of the Elgin Award for full-length collection are, in third place, Come Late to the Love of Birds by Sandra Casturi of Tightrope Books. In second place, Notes from the Shadow City by Bruce Boston and Gary William Crawford, published by Dark Regions Press. And the winner, Lovers and Killers by Mary Terzillo, Dark Regions Press. Cryogenics by Sandra Casturi. In the future, we will gain the power to freeze love, cooled slightly to liquid and ready to pour, then tipped into ice cube trays and chilled overnight. Sometimes we'll stick toothpicks in beforehand and make love sickles, taken out of the freezer to lap slowly, soothing in the hot ear of summer, crunched quickly by winter log fires or used as an ingredient in savory soups, hearty stews. The heady steam of love swirling through the kitchen, making the dog sneeze explosively, causing starlings to burst into the air in a flurry of confusion. Love sneaking out one barely cracked window and into another, surprising the widow neighbor during her afternoon lie-down. A smile, fifteen years in the making. The River Magnus Winds Through the Shadow City by Bruce Boston and Gary William Crawford The River Magnus winds through the shadow city where songs are sung with the tuneless solidity of ancient cantos. Cancerous dirges for a dirty river thick with the debris of a failed population. The dismal shores of the River Magnus are lined by fences topped with barbed wire by empty warehouses, by deserted factories, surrounded by weeds, their high patchworks of broken windows revealing nothing but blackness beyond. The dismal shores of the River Magnus are lined by scattered and overgrown lots where rats and feral cats and other vermin practice the survival of the fittest by the unkempt backyards of clapboard houses sinking into desuetude, the kind of houses in which you imagine a crazy old lady or serial killer might live. The River Magnus is a deadly and capricious river, changing its course with the rains, which can rage at any time of year, pummeling down from leaden clouds in stinging icy droplets, a smattering of hail or a torrential roar that sweeps roads and houses away. So entire districts, once on land, lie underwater. The River Magnus is a deadly and capricious river that rampages beyond its banks in any season, sending out a net of streaming tributaries, smudge gray snakes crawling beneath a smudged sky. When the rains subside and the River Magnus returns to its course, flooded areas surface. Streets and buildings, coated with the river's slime and sludge, often stained by a lime-white fungus that raises blisters on the flesh of all who touch it. 
When the rains subside and the river Magnus returns to its course, the areas flooded are condemned and cordoned off as uninhabitable for years at a time. Only the starving choose to fish in the infected waters of the river Magnus, and their catches are never the same except for being goggle-eyed and monstrous and covered with black sores, evil mutations of perverted genes, reeking of chemicals and human waste. Only suicides and mad fools choose to swim in the vile waters of the River Magnus, dank with the sheen of oil and garbage, and those that do rarely return to the shore, even as corpses. For something lives in those evil currents, a creature that devours and excretes, feeding off the city, consuming its bile and diverse refuse, adding its own stench to the riot of decay. The river Magnus winds through the shadow city where songs are sung with the tuneless solidity of ancient cantos. Suicide songs sung in a minor key, murderous ones in a major key, Mean litanies, one and all, cancerous dirges for a dirty river, thick with the debris of a failed population. Tohoku Tsunami From Lovers and Killers By Mary Terzillo Taro finds a sea turtle, belly up, helpless, tormented by thugs, He writes it, cradles, gives it back to the sea. Another sea turtle, immense, as from woodcuts of monsters devouring Kyoto, walks out of the tide, finds Taro, dumbstruck, afraid. But fisherman Taro, doused with sea spittle, grows gills. Come, come with me, the huge turtle named Ryujin, sea kami, Toes him to ocean's root. A palace refulgent with kanju, chrysoberyls that make the tide fall, and manju, alexandrine plates that make the tide rise. The kanju are scales. The manju also are scales. The palace is a dragon. In its deepest coil, Ryujin presents Princess Otohime, my daughter. The turtle you returned to the sea. Otohime's beauty sponges away Taro's recall of fishing and Miyagi, his home. Taro, Otohime's consort now, lives in a palace. It stirs now and then. Scales, chrysoprase, corundum, coils, serpentine. The dragon, Ryugoju, seabed, origin, center. Coils, jealous around princess and fisher. Taro yearns to see his mother. Otohime, salt tears, agrees, gives him a box. Do not open. He forgets to ask why. The dragon, ready to sleep years, centuries, eons, releases Taro. Taro walks inland, finds Miyagi's streets, buzz with cars, light blaze, women in brief skirts. He asks, Have you heard of Taro the fisherman? Urashima Taro? Yes. A legend. Walked into the sea to rescue a turtle. Never returned, but his footprints on the beach were lined with jewels. 
Taro asks of his mother, That was long ago, they say. She has been dead three centuries. He sinks down. All he knew is the dust of burnt offerings. He is wayfarer in an arid, metallic land. Bereft on a city curb, he remembers the box. It will bring back my world. He opens. An echoing dragon sea heart opens. The dragon's jewel scales flex. First the kanju. Call the sea back to the dragon, so the tide sinks. And folk wonder, has the sea abandoned us? The dragon flexes again, and his belly scale manju ripple, and the water rushes inland. All is awash, lights put out, temples, cars, people crushed, as an anthill engulfed, until finally the vat opens where the folk grow electricity, irradiating Miyagi with billion jellyfish poison and not having sea turtle shells, folk tumble, sicken, and die. The sea washes Taro back to the palace dragon, which coils, then yawns. The princess closes the box, but no man can live three hundred years. Taro ages and fails, blood staining salt water. He dies. The princess weeps. The dragon, flood-weary, sleeps. I think I can be quite pleased with myself that I reviewed all six of these collections on Amazing Stories. Clearly, I enjoyed each of these collections enough to write a review of them. A discussion of Bruce Boston's collaborative collection is embedded within the first part of my interview with him. I'll put a link to my author page in the show notes for Poetry Planet, which you can find on my personal blog. There you'll be able to read snippets of the poems as well as listen to several more readings of complete poems from each collection. The Dwarf Stars Award is given annually to the best poem, 10 lines or under. The editors or compilers of the anthology this year were Linda Addison and Stephen M. Wilson. They collect all the poems they can find from anywhere and everywhere, print or digital, and make the first selections and publish an anthology from which the SFPA membership votes for their three favorite poems. I enjoyed this year's anthology immensely. It's a quick read due to the length of the poems, and so I was able to read it several times in order to whittle the number of poems that spoke to me down to the ones I thought should win. I'm quite happy with the results. The winners in reverse order are... In third place, Sarcophagus by N.E. Taylor, found in Ink Scrawl 3. Sarcophagus. I am reading with my fingertips all the magic that could not save you. And in second place, The Hidden by Mary Terzillo from Lovers and Killers, Dark Regions Press, 2012. The Hidden. You have shown me, rock bed beneath the stream, the horror underneath, the scream beneath the music, the bone beneath the flesh. The blood beneath the skin, worms under the velvet, the grave beneath white roses, your death beneath your grace. And for the best short poem, Basho After Cinderella 3 by Deborah P. Kologi 
found in Rattle, number 38. Basho after Cinderella, 3. Pumpkin Vine. A mouse remembers how to neigh. And with that, women sweep the category. Way to go, ladies. So that'll do it for this edition of Poetry Planet. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you'll join me next time as I showcase the Reisling Award winners. Until then, this is me. Bye-bye. There you go, Diane. Diane's going to actually bring another Poetry Planet number 11 very soon, she's saying as well. Some, some more awards coming as well. So, Diane, thank you so much. Well, that is show 303. Carrying on, you know what I mean? I'd, lovely to have you here again, like I say. Thank you so much. We're all now kind of back in the running and you know, looking forward to another year of Starship Sova. So, until next week, just like to say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.